1: Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with my guests, Hanna Shalist and Marina Rabinovich, about uh, the book that, that edited and that they uh, recently published, Decentralization, Regional Diversity and Conflict, The Case of Ukraine, which was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2020. Hannah Shalist is the Security Studies Program Director editor-in-chief of UA Ukraine Analytica and head of the board of the NGO Promotion of Intercultural Cooperation. Prior to this, she had served for more than 10 years as a senior researcher at the National Institute for Strategic Studies under the president of Ukraine, Odessa Branch. In 2014, uh, Dr. Shalist served as a visiting research fellow at the NATO Defense College in Rome. Previously, she had experience in PR and lobbying for government and business, as well as teaching at Odessa National University. She has more than 50 academic and more than 100 articles in media published worldwide. And Marina Rabinovich is assistant professor at the Department of Public Policy and Governance at the Kiev School of Economics. Dr. Rabinovich's research interests include Uh, international and EU development policy with a focus on political development and fundamental values rule of law, democracy, good governance, international and EU trade policy EU external relations and their legal regulation as well as the actual issues pertaining to Ukrainian politics and law such as the, uh, the reform of decentralization and conflict settlement She publishes her works in international peer-reviewed journals such as East European Politics, Brill Open Law, Journal of Contemporary European Research. Hello, Hanna and Marina. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining me today and congratulations on the publication of your collection of essays. The volume that you edited, Decentralization, Regional Diversity and Conflict to the case of Ukraine, covers a lot of issues uh, which are pertinent to the situation that uh, shape internal and external policies in Ukraine today. Uh, I would like to start with regional diversity, which to a large extent is uh, one of the aspects that is still rather hard to manage for a number of legal constitutional regulations and decisions. One of the central points of the volume revolves around the historical premises of regional diversity in Ukraine. Would you clarify this point? Why does regional diversity play a crucial role in today's political environment of Ukraine? And what are the main challenges?
2: Uh, I would probably start, uh, and that is a really good question. It's probably one of the central in uh, this book, and you can find it uh, not only in the chapters about regional diversity, but as a red line in many others. And the idea is that uh, very often the uh, uh, existing regional diversity, which is the benefit of Ukraine, it's something that is created by the uh, years of history, of the difficult history of Ukraine, and what is accepted inside of the country as an advantage of the country is uh, uh, very often manipulated, manipulated politically, manipulated by the external forces, including the covert operations or information operations against Ukraine. Uh, It became one of the red lines since 2004 in the political campaigns and the struggle for power, when political technologists started to use it as a disadvantage, not as an advantage of Ukraine. And uh, uh, what is more important that within the last years, uh, probably since 2014, but the first examples were even earlier, and our book also demonstrated, uh, that uh, uh, this issue became securitized. So from the classical constructivist uh, uh, point of view, that is probably one of the best examples, how you can take the issue that exists, that is not a problem, that is just an issue, in fact, And you're starting to securitize it in each of the decisions of the statements of international institutions, of your foreign partners, of your enemies, and of the uh, uh, internal political discourse. So that is why for us this regional diversity uh, was extremely important and for our authors to demonstrate that. Uh, The existence of regional diversity uh, should be studied first, not just used as the manipulation um, uh, argument, that if you look to the real facts, the regional diversity is not a problem. But definitely very often in the contemporary discourse around the uh, Russian-Ukrainian conflict, that is the issue that is probably the easiest to be used to demonstrate that Ukraine has problems. So through the articles, uh, we really wanted the authors to demonstrate the real picture, to give as much as possible information, because without information, with certain information vacuum, we are coming to the problem that uh, we give others the voice about the real situation with the regional diversity uh, of Ukraine.
1: Thank you, Hannah. Uh, Marina?
0: Yeah, I agree with Anna to a great extent about the role regional diversity plays in contemporary political environment and security environment in Ukraine. But what I wanted to add to what Anna said is the importance of accommodating and managing regional diversity. Because uh, um, before the conflict, uh, as Oksana Mushlovsky in the chapter, there have barely been some well-conceptualized policies in Ukraine that would look into the diversity and that would uh, employ particular tools to manage it. Uh, Therefore, uh, our Also, our idea and our focus was to uh, show that uh, the reform of decentralization, uh, so we also regard it as a reform whose aim is to accommodate regional diversity uh, while recognizing that diversity is in place and we shall not ignore it, and at the same time, as Anna said, uh, not allowing others to accommodate it the way others would love to do that.
1: Mm-hmm. I have a follow up question on this issue of uh, diversity. So um, maybe uh, we could specify what kind of diversity um, is meant here. So maybe it's uh, regional diversity, ethnic diversity, demographic diversity. So maybe uh, a little some um, uh, some some more clarification here. And as uh, Anna mentioned. Um, Diversity can be used as an advantage as as a an, an disadvantage, and um, could we just give a couple of examples how diversity can be used as an uh, as a disadvantage actually, uh, as well as advantage um, as well. Mm-hmm.
2: I would probably start from this last question and we'll leave uh, uh, more options for Marina uh, for the beginning of it. Uh, when we speak about the disadvantage, we clearly saw it in uh, 2014-15, especially in such regions as the uh, Zakarpattia or Bessarabia, the south of Odessa region when, uh, uh, for example, Bessarabia is very multi-ethnic. You have the Albanian, Bulgarian, Moldovan, Ukrainian Mm -hmm. villages, Gagauzia. These people speak their own languages. uh, uh, And uh, for 300 years, we've never seen conflicts there. Mm -hmm. So these people can speak uh, simultaneously at all these languages. And they always thought about this diversity as the advantage, as the multicultural, as a tolerance, as the best examples of how different ethnic groups can uh, live at the same lab. But in 2014, 2015, there were plenty of examples when through the gossips, through the uh, uh, statements of some politicians, we started to see the first examples of the clashes, luckily not physical clashes. But these issues started to be in between certain ethnic groups that never had problems before, and also between these multi-ethnic districts and Kiev as a central government, because they started um, politicians started to say them that their problems in economic sphere, for example, in social sphere, that is because they are from the different ethnic groups. Just because they wanted to get these groups for their political advantages to support certain political parties. And the same if you uh, study the reports of the security services of Ukraine, there were numerous attempts to um, to fire certain inter-ethnic relations. Uh, in Zakarpattia. the best example when the Polish nationalist paid by the Russian security services burned the Hungarian uh, cultural center. It, it sounded like a crazy situation from some uh, bad movie. But that was a real case because uh, initially it was accepted as the anti-Hungarian sentiments of Ukrainians, and definitely we had a diplomatic scandal between Hungary and Ukraine. So you can imagine how the existence of the certain ethnic groups can, especially when they live compactly at the certain territories, uh, can be used um, to destabilize the situation. Political and Eastern interesting situation. And I can uh, name plenty of examples uh, like this. The same cases definitely sometimes with the Crimean Tatars, who were the uh, IDPs moving uh, to the Kherson region, or uh, like many, many, many situations. That's why uh, we understand perfectly how it can be used as a disadvantage. At the same time, definitely, uh, when you have a careful approach, tailored made approach, we see how we can use uh, this multi-ethnic situation, for example, as an advantage, describing that, come on, but for 300 years we've lived together uh, for good, and uh, we always had it without any problems. So. From the appreciate inquiry approach, mm-hmm. here looking like why we managed to live like this, what uh, brought these problems, and how we can solve. Uh, can it be examples uh, for others? The same is with the uh, uh, democratic plurality and this regional diversity, because we understand that in different regions sometimes different parties are ex- uh, like more popular. Uh, all disadvantages we know. It brought us to Maidan first and Yevra Maidan second, to many other difficult political campaigns. But at the same time, uh, um, when we speak, for example, with our uh, our counterparts from other uh, post-Soviet states, we always can say, come on, but that is democracy. When you have these different political parties, okay, maybe in the different uh, regions, that, that what make this plurality of opinions and that is what is the real democracy. Maybe we are still democracy in progress, in transformation. That, that is so, uh, it is no black and white. Mm-hmm. You always can find uh, how to use this situation, how to manipulate with it, or how to find the positive uh, examples and to move forward with the reforms and transformation of the society.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, Trying to uh, develop a follow up to this. Just one more example of a disadvantage that came to my mind uh, linked to the reform of decentralization has been the recent uh, reform of rayons, when in, in Ukraine before there were like more than 4,000. For 100 rayons, um, but now, in terms of the utilization reform, in order to increase their capacity, their quantity was diminished to 136. And uh, what uh, the issue that immediately came to the surface was that um uh, Ukrainian government tries to create a separate Hungarian rayon or Hungarian area in order to then give this area to Budapest, if speaking in simplest terms. So we can see that. Uh, the diversity can be instrumentalized whenever there is any issue, and uh, then the government always has to give some rebuttal. Actually, um, responding to these uh, allegations, the government was saying that actually, now since uh, this area or rayon is quite big, uh, there, are much, there are many more Ukrainians living there than it was before when rayon was small and they were just Hungarian origin. Nevertheless, fake news appear very quickly. And they spread easily, and sometimes they are very easy to believe. That's why regional diversity can in become a disadvantage uh, in the, in the, when the world. It's more governed by by fake news, by uh, post-truths, and all these contemporary uh, peculiarities of international relations. Regarding the types of diversity that uh, rest, our Ambition was to touch upon different types of diversity and apart from regional diversity per se, uh, that Aksana Wyshlovska dealt with. Uh, we also included linguistic diversity and tried to uh, find out how the Constitutional Court of Ukraine addressed linguistic diversity in its decisions. And also, we had a separate contribution about Crimean Tatars, their identity, and the way uh, they perceived the conflict uh, by Alina Zubkova from Stockholm, uh, who who currently works with Swedish Institute. Uh, It could be also nice to have a piece on religious diversity, but unfortunately the volume of the book didn't allow for this. Uh, But actually any kind of diversity can be instrumentalized, securitized, can become a topic for fake news. Therefore, basically all possible types of diversity need to be taken into account when new governmental policies are being developed.
1: Well, uh Do you believe that this kind of instrumentalization of diversity was used in the past? Not at the current moment, but uh, how how the uh, way we deal with the diversity changed over time. But I'm particularly interested in this uh, idea of instrumentalization of diversity, because it's quite a fascinating idea how diversity can be used uh, as in some positive aspects, as well as in some negative aspects. So, the, 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 the line is really very grey there.
2: Uh, you know, probably one of the examples in the uh, book that we have is quite an interesting analysis about the language diversity and the uh, use of it uh, in the Constitutional Court of Ukraine. So how the different political parties have been using uh, their request to the constitutional court. Uh, And what is interesting that it has been used not by one political party. So it it has been used from both political spectrums, Mm -hmm. from both uh, language groups. uh, That is more for the just Ukrainian language use or those for two Russian and Ukrainian languages to be used in the daily life. So uh, we have a very interesting uh, article by Andrei uh who described exactly the different examples uh, through the, I don't know, probably 10 years, uh, he took the most, or even earlier, if I'm not mistaken, since 2004, he took the cases when the members of parliament been uh, asking the constitutional court for uh, clarification. Mm-hmm. And very interesting how purely legal issues are transformed because... Uh, we understand, it is like a circle, you know, the closed circle. Political parties being political, asking constitutional court for the legal issues. But at the same time, constitutional court doesn't want to give just the legal decision mm-hmm. because they are afraid to be caught in this political uh, confrontation. And they are not giving the clear answer. So it is not the answer that can satisfy one side. And they are returning back the ball to the side of political parties because... Sometimes they were telling that it's not in their competition. Sometimes they were giving the decisions that can be read uh, as you want, but not bringing clarity. Mm-hmm. So his article is probably one of the best examples how you can instrumentalize it even in such a political legal issues, not only uh, in the pure political competition between the different uh, sides in Ukraine.
0: Mm-hmm. I would say... Mm-hmm. In terms of history, uh, there, in terms of Ukrainian history, there have been many examples when diversity was, uh, to some extent, instrumentalized um, by different parties, by uh, the proponents of different ideas, such as the idea of economic special zones in Ukraine, uh, for instance, with the best, as far as I know, there were the ideas of uh, redoing Puerto Port- Franco. And then uh, uh, these like kind of, Odessa, Odessa history was also instrumentalized in its terms, saying that Odessa is a big city, it shall it have some special status and so on so forth. So and when somebody says special status, one can already make different innovations in this regard. However, before all these large culture of news and, and propaganda started to develop, this instrument of implementation wasn't that, I say, that great. It wasn't of such a scale as it is now. However, now with Facebook algorithms, it's possible to create totally uh, different virtual worlds for different categories of people, for uh, people in different countries. And therefore, now this instrumentalization becomes ever stronger and ever more easy to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I would like to talk more about the current conflict between Ukraine and Russia, and um, um, you already uh, mentioned uh, to some extent how diversity was uh, misused, right, Um, uh, during this um, conflict. Regional diversity weighs in to the problem, but uh, on a populist level, this diversity is often simplified to the level of what ethnicity or nationality we speak about, and in this case it's primarily about the Ukraine Ukrainians and Russians. Your volume offers uh, to look at the self proclaimed so called republics, uh, Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's um, Republic, which are supported by the Russian Federation. Uh, what does regional diversity help understand what the, uh, about these regions? What diversity and what traits of diversity uh, should be emphasized here, uh, if any, of course? And I think it pertains to the remark which was made by uh, Hannah earlier earlier, that diversity can be used to solve conflicts. So how can we use diversity in this case uh, to solve this kind of conflict?
2: No, we're speaking more on behalf of our authors who express their opinions uh, uh, here. But definitely uh, uh, mine and Marina opinions are in the introduction to the book, why this topic is important. And it seems to me that what book demonstrated especially about uh, Russian-Ukrainian conflict and so-called DPR and LPR, is that uh, over there, uh, it is the clear constructed uh, conflict when there are weaknesses and some difficulties uh, of the uh, like socio-economic or political uh, but not ethnic or diversity uh, issues have been used by the uh, adversary country. And, uh, uh, but at the same time, what is really important that our authors demonstrate that even if you don't have a problem, uh, through the years, you can develop it to the, pro- uh, to the real problem. That's how through the years, we probably um, not create but develop uh, the local identity when the local identity is becoming more important for the people than the original identity. And the research is definitely, the articles demonstrate that... Um, We we even don't speak about the whole region, yep. Let's be honest and let's explain to uh, our listeners that uh, when we say Donbass in the news, it's not even the whole Donbass. We're speaking about one-third of Donetsk and Lugansk regions, and we speak about just 5% of the territory of Ukraine. So we are not speaking about certain unity, which is... Clearly, like Catalonia in Spain, for example, yeah, or Bavaria in Germany. We are speaking just about individual towns that have been occupied and where, after the six years, through propaganda, through military presence, through the conflict, through the economic issues, the local identity can, uh, has been cultivated. That's probably the best uh, word to descri- uh, describe it. We always had a certain Eastern Ukrainian identity that uh, been created mostly after the 1950s, when this region uh, received a lot of Russians from the Soviet Union to reconstruct the mining industries and metallurgical industries. So definitely there were certain regional deb- Particularities, uh, let's say. But uh, it is not the same particularities that make uh, uh, regions to separate or to make the the new countries. So here it is probably the perfect example of the misuse of the diversity uh, rather than uh, to satisfy the certain political ambitions, or even better to say, uh, to use by Russia to control Ukraine. Because uh, here Probably uh, the best example how uh, we um, we we understand different in terms of terminology about diversity. We have a wonderful article by Nadia Koval, who is showing how the word that uh, federalization is understood differently in Germany, Russia, and Ukraine. That for Germans, federalization is good. It's nothing bad. Yep, it's how the good functional state is, is working. So when they use it about Ukraine proposing it as a solution for the Donbass conflict, they mean only good things. But at the same time, we have a Russia who is also a federal state, mm-hmm. but we're no real power in the regions. And who doesn't want to bring the equal powers to all regions of Ukraine. But they propose just for this part percent of the territory of Ukraine with the only idea to have a control over domestic and foreign policy uh, of Ukraine. So uh, uh, Nadia in her article uh, demonstrates how through this wording, through the terminology, we have a completely different narratives and policies and how sometimes proposing the good ideas from diversity, as we started talking from diversity, uh, the results are negative. So do no harm is probably the best uh, concept to be examined for Ukraine, when uh, some of the mediators or external experts would like to propose the best solution from their experience, but not look into the real roots of the conflict or the real arguments of another side. Uh, they're bringing harm, but not the, the, the good decision. They're cultivating these uh, separatist ideas just in these uh, uh, individual uh, towns, which are currently completely controlled by the Russian uh, uh, Federation. So uh, that's why it seems to me that uh, in our book a lot of authors try to demonstrate that it is uh, not a single and simple decision that risk assessment should be done probably for most of the decision, that even decentralization is a way to uh, appraise the diversity of Ukraine. And we understand we are speaking about almost 50 million people. We're speaking about a huge country where decentralization can be seen as a positive because uh, you can't control the whole country from the center. But at the same time, they demonstrate how in case you don't, Estimate the risks mitigate the risks that this reform is bringing that the ideas of special status for the is bringing uh, We can bring even more problems More difficulties and just to give instruments to those who would like
1: to destabilize uh, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to say before uh, Marina um, gives her a kind of uh, response to this question, uh, I, I just wanted to say that it was such a wonderful example of, with that notion of federalization uh, as understood in uh, Germany, Russia or Ukraine, for example. And you uh, specified some uh, terminology, right, that uh, somehow shapes that kind of understanding. Um, and uh, I believe we can also add some different uh, history in terms of historical developments, cultural developments, and political history, and that history of a democracy that all, all three countries have, and they, of course, are uh, different, and that somehow also contributes to this different understanding of federalization, but wonderful, wonderful example of a federalization. Um, Marina? I'd like to make
0: two points with regard to the previous question, let's say the first point is about terminology. Terminology is the thing that matters a lot both in in terms of the conflict in Ukraine, in terms of its resolution, and in terms of writing about the conflict. I would say uh, it took us three years from the very first proposal uh, to do the book until it was published, and maybe more than one and a half years has been the debate about terminology with the publishing house. Initially, our idea was to address uh, the conflict, as, uh, as many authors suggested, and as it's... Uh, Usually said in Ukraine. Our idea was to uh, name it Ukrainian-Russian war, or at least the conflict in the Ukrainian conflict, or the Ukraine conflict, or something like this. However, what we heard from the publishing house was uh, that there may be readers with a different opinion. So if you read between the lines, readers who would share Russian's position as regards the conflict as a civil war in Ukraine, and that's why we need to find like, the most neutral way to address the conflict. And that made us select the definition of from the uh, uh, OCC, saying that the conflict shall be named, the conflict in and around Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So this. Term. can be also seen as contested because people ask, okay, and what does around Ukraine mean? Does it mean somewhere in Belarus it is around Ukraine or maybe somewhere in Poland also around Ukraine? Nonetheless, the sole thing we could have done was to rely on the definition by international organization and say we're not judges, we're not international adjudicators, and we don't have uh, the competences to do um, to define the nature of the conflict itself. Also, when we speak about uh, people who are in Donbass, some people would say uh, they are uh, they are I don't even know the word. And how how they call it in English? Rebellions are rebellions. Others would say uh, they are just. Uh, People who live in the occupied territories. Others would say there are. Uh uh, Russian Ellis, whatever. So, anytime you select a term to define something in terms of Ukrainian-Russian conflict, you need to think carefully what term you select. Otherwise, there can be a scandal or uh, just a huge misunderstanding. Even even when we selected uh, the terms of conflict in and around Ukraine, we still heard very different opinions about that. So, terminology matters, and that's why it's very important to define concepts, to study concepts and to be able to clarify to a large uh, number of people in Ukraine and beyond Ukraine what each concept, what each concept actually means. And the second point is about the constructed nature of the conflict. As Anna was saying, um, I wanted to make a different example also from the book chapter, the chapter by Jaroslava Barpiri from the University of Birmingham. Uh, She was trying to find out whether the the decentralization reform was a good tool to address the conflict, and what she found was that the decentralization was also misused. Not just federalization, but decentralization the because uh, there have been so-called fake communities or when parallel to new amalgamated communities, uh, pro-Russian forces tried to establish their own amalgamated communities and kind of size power uh, in some places, for instance, in, in and in oblast, and local locals were even believing that these people are real authorities. Of newly created communities, similar initiatives would say existed with regard to some new special economic zones and some other forms of accommodating regional diversity. Also. Mm. Kind of parallel structures of power uh, can be initiated wherever, and in case of locals, especially there are some old people who don't listen to news very often, or uh, people who don't follow politics, can even believe that some parallel power structure structures are real power structures, and that's why it's still important for the government, even though this decentralization, to control what happens uh, in the regions especially and to control whether no parallel structures emerge uh, either more or less openly or uh, remain in a shadow mm-hmm.
1: well um uh, terminology matters indeed <laughs> and um yes that's that's very true uh and uh, i would just add to that that um it's important, and i th- that's why I believe your volume is so um, significant and so important, because it gives this uh, representation of the problem, right, from uh, multiple angles, and what we have to deal today is the narratives that come from Russia on the one hand, right, how they uh, um, um, talk about this conflict, and on the other hand, we have uh, Ukraine, but unfortunately Ukraine doesn't have that much representation in terms of, let's say, uh, English uh, um, uh, anglophone um, uh, resources in the media space. And there is always this clash between uh, the Ukrainian representation and the Russian representation uh, in terms of uh, media resources. Uh, And I think that your volume does contribute a lot to this kind of uh, shaping of how we can uh, look at this conflict and what aspects should be considered when we talk about the uh, conflict, uh, which is not only in the Donbas, but in Crimea as well. And um, also could you could you um comment a little bit on that terminology about Crimea because there is some there are some notes in your uh, volume about how we approach uh, the uh, annexed um, Crimea uh,
2: uh, Probably just few words from my side because the Crimea we are not taking it uh, from the um uh, political point of view in terms of the special status for Crimean indigenous people, uh, what is what is quite an important, but probably deserve a special uh, uh, book just about this. And we know that now the interest in Crimean topic is becoming more and more, so we hope that such books uh, will appear in the future as well, and we see more and more work at the political level in terms of articles, media, to- talking about this. Uh, but at the same time, uh, uh, it is very important uh, to look how the Crimean Tatars, who are a different ethnic, religious group and quite a special group in the Ukrainian society, but that have been uh, witnessing the aggression and occupation um, firsthand, um, what is their self-identification? Uh, how much they self-identify themselves as a part of Ukraine? So, uh, uh, what is their place in this self-identification? What can be the like, uh, when we speak about Ukrainian, is it means just to be ethnic Ukrainian? And it seems to me that with the chapters about Crimean tellers we have quite a good uh, uh, demonstration in their uh, commands, because what, what is good, uh, the... Um, uh, article by uh, Alida's of course she is exactly answering like Crimean Tatars and the question of national and ethnic belonging in Ukraine because in Russian and Ukrainian language it's always a mix it is coming from the Soviet union terminology these ethnic and national belonging So very often saying being Ukrainian, people are thinking only about uh, being ethnic Ukrainian. And uh, with the interviews that Alina demonstrates with quotations of different people, that mostly IDPs who are now living in different parts of uh, the country, um, what for them means being Crimean Tatars, but at the same time uh, being Ukrainian. With what it associated, uh, is it more or less being feeling uh, one or another? Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, that that is definitely uh, we couldn't cover all questions of Crimean Tatars' identity, uh, but we wanted to incorporate it because it demonstrated the the diversity, which is wider than the Western audience is thinking. Uh, Because, as you said about Anglophone uh, readers, usually when they think about Ukraine and any kind of ethnic diversity or any kind of diversity, they're thinking about Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers, or even worse, what i noticed in the several sociological research recently, Russian and Ukrainian ethnic groups. So it doesn't matter that a lot of, of the ethnic Russians are much bigger Ukrainian nationalists than other Ukrainian ethnics. So they don't understand this difference. They are taking it just from the clear distinction, Russian, Ukrainian. Uh, So here, adding the Crimean Tatar component to this diversity, we demonstrate that the picture is much wider, that it's not conflict between majority Ukrainian population and minorities like Russians who probably have some problems uh, at the political or ethnic level. That we also have another big uh, ethnic group that is much more national Ukrainian, if you can say it like this in mm-hmm. English, but associate themselves much more with the Ukrainian state, mm-hmm. Ukrainian citizenship, Ukrainian statehood, that even some of the uh, ethnic Ukrainians are, uh, are doing. So that's why it seems to me that these chapters about Crimean Tatars are really like I enjoyed reading them a lot because they give you not just the gossips or something, but they give you quite a coherent and complex vision of what does mean to be a uh, Crimean Tatar, but at the same time, uh Ukrainian.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. Uh, Marina. Uh, well, I have a, a question about um, decentralization um, that uh, has been discussed for a long time, but its effectiveness leaves much to be desired. Uh, why the process of decentralization has been so slow? Uh, What administrative decisions should be implemented as well? And um, uh, does decentralization entail the change of how we think about state and power as well? Because part of the book is um, about uh, these difficulties that um, we've been having with this process. Um, Marina? Um,
0: So... Um, the reform of decentralization—it's considered widely to be a success story of, um, among the reforms kind of, um, that, um, that were done uh, after the Euromaidan—and I would challenge this idea that it was slow. I wouldn't say it was slow because other reforms were taking much more time than decentralization. For instance, uh, the reform of the justice sector—I um, like can remember. That Ten years ago when I was at the when I was studying at the law faculty in Odessa, I heard okay, so a case there is the reform of the justice sector ongoing and still the reform of the justice sector is ongoing and will be ongoing since like forever. The reform of decentralization has two clear or more or less clear stages. Uh, the first stage was until 2019 and it embraced from 2014 and it embraced this very process of community amalgamation, of granting them uh additional. Additional authorities plus additional financial resources for them uh, to be able to deal with these new authorities. Uh, And the the second stage is from. uh, 2020 to uh, 2021, and it basically embraces these changes uh, to administrative territorial order of Ukraine, uh, plus it should also includes the changes to the constitution. And in my view, the only really challenging thing with decentralization are these changes to the constitution and decentralization's relation with the Minsk process and with the peace process in Donbass, because initially the decentralization... Uh, was introduced independently on uh, this process as a way to strengthen Ukraine, as a way uh, to strengthen communities and giving them the, this very feeling of being uh, the masters of their uh, places and uh, govern some local local affairs. However, then, you know, in the Minsk agreement, centralization was also put forward as one of the political conditions of the Minsk process. When you look at the key legal acts of government you will not find the link to the minsk process it was also part of my research for the book so i could uh, talk quite a lot about these. So basically, this link is still missing, and therefore, introducing the civilization into the constitution while the Minsk process is still being extensively hampered, it's not really possible. On the other hand, when the is just in the rules, it can be washed off by the next parliament, and it's not that a difficult thing because when you have the civilization and financial resources provided for in the constitution. If this is the case for Germany, for the uh, federal uh, lender and for the uh, finances lender, then you always entail the risk that either there would be the communities will, will be once again again somehow reformed, or they will receive insufficient funds, and it's it already the case with the new subventions. Uh, therefore, some constitutional provisions are necessary, but very difficult to do. And I would say that it would be quite a surprise in case it will, it will become possible, given the situation with the Minsk process and with the local elections regarding uh, the statehood question. I agree that the civilization shall entail the new vision of the state and new vision of communities and people there. Uh, Because before, they were basically the approach was largely top-down. They were receiving some money from the government, they didn't have a lot of legal pathways to earn money, and they didn't have enough capacity to do something, to do projects, to receive funding from third-party sources. So they were largely dysfunctional now. There are a lot of opportunities for them to receive funding and to, to improve life in communities very directly to own uh, medical institutions, to own education institutions. However, capacity is still a large issue, and another large issue it is very feeling of being the master of your community and being able to manage it effectively. So, like, management, capacity, and all these projects um, really uh, is really still a challenge for communities, and a lot will depend on specific people in the specific community and how they manage issues they have. Also, just another small remark about that, um, about the, co- the capacity issue. Uh, I have read the analysis about how the subventions are being used, and the vast majority of funds from the national uh Fund for regional development are still still being used for uh, some operational projects, like to build the road or to do some renovation in the hospital whatever, but there are virtually no projects that can offer you more income in the future. So the economic activity of communities remains very low, and there are not so many chances and not so many best practices maybe on how to do some enterprises at the community level, how to manage them, and so on and so forth. But that's why like, turning communities into business subjects to some extent is really a challenge for decentralization alongside all these political, constitutional and new cross-story petitions.
1: Thank you, Marina. Uh, Hannah, would you like to add anything to this?
2: No, it is good because for decentralization, we can talk for hours and for hours. It is still <laughs> processed. And it seems to me that Uh, the biggest risks and opportunities we will see after October 25, when Ukraine have a local elections and it will be the first elections according to the new administrative structure of Ukraine, with the new rules and uh, with the new powers for the local authorities. So it seems to me that uh, the real situation we can uh, evaluate, let's say, in the beginning of 2021, when the results of these elections uh, will be visible and when the first decisions at the local level will be taken. Definitely, and you can see it in some of the articles that our authors touch, that uh, uh, not only that decentralization can be misused, what Marina described uh, in her previous statements, but also that uh, it is such a complex issue, it's not just uh, um, redrafting the borders of, of certain regions or just giving a little bit more power to the local authorities, but we understand that it is just a first stage, and it can bring both decisions to some conflict uh, or risks to some conflicts to start, as uh, we will see the further changes in the law for education, at the uh, financing uh, at the local level, and especially in the multi-ethnic uh, districts of Ukraine, uh, we can see the further developments and further implications. But at the same time, that's definitely a Ukrainian argument. As our book is about decentralization, diversity, and conflict. So definitely we look to the decentralization only from this point of view. And uh, here we understand perfectly that when Russia is speaking about federalization of special status, Ukraine always has an argument But for why you need it. You need it for the bigger powers for the local. That's what decentralization is bringing. That's what we are already doing. And uh, you want greater powers only for a few towns on the east, and we want bigger powers to to the whole country, to all uh, local authorities. And here it is very important for us because we understand perfectly the risk. As soon as we give bigger powers, changes to the constitutions for uh, Donbas, uh, why Odessa or Dnieper or Zhutomir would not be able to say uh, why them, why not us? <laughs> so, definitely through such an individual approach, we can uh, bring uh, bigger risks and bigger conflict potential to the whole country. So, we are describing how um, decentralization, in case implemented perfectly, can contribute both to the conflict mitigation in Ukraine but also to the European integration. That is probably one of the aspects that we haven't discussed yet, but what is uh, in the book, that few of our authors also looked uh, through all these problems through the lens of European integration of Ukraine, how it can uh, um, assist us, Uh, how it can facilitate the process, or maybe how it can bring certain difficulties. So, for Ukraine, when the European integration is chosen as the strategic course of the country, it is very important also to look uh, at these processes through the lens of the European Union uh, norms and uh, European Union integration process of Ukraine. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, uh, could we draw parallels between the case of Ukraine and other international cases in terms of managing regional diversity and interstate conflicts um, as well?
2: We probably have the best example is a uh, Marina article that uh, you can find in this book, where she looked at the special status and one of the aspects of this diversity Yes, very often in Ukraine, we are um, saying that Ukrainian conflict is unique. Definitely mm-hmm. it is, as any conflict in the world. But definitely we have certain parallels with the uh, uh, Moldovan Transnistrian Republic and with and South Ossetia conflict with Georgia, not only because Russia is involved in all three conflicts, but also because Russia used a lot of instruments and methods uh, directly or indirectly. And we can see the parallels from negotiations to the peace propositions. And to the propaganda narratives, what is interesting, we've been comparing, it is not in the book, and other researchers, uh, we started comparing the propaganda narratives from 1992 to 1995 in Transnistria and 2014 in Ukraine. They were the same. So uh, that's why it is very important also to look at the special status, because in both Georgia and Moldova, the separatist regions, received the special status. And uh, in Marina article, you can read how she's comparing how the special status has been evolving, how it is in the documents, and uh, looking what are the parallels, what may be lessons learned for Ukraine, both positive and negative. So in this case, it's not only diversity, but also the instrumentalization of this uh, diversity, as an example, for you pray. Right?
1: Marina, would you like to uh, tell us a few words about your article? Yeah, um, like
2: the
0: idea of my article, it comes from the fact, Kate. Okay. As a way, I come from the legal background, and therefore I had this impression that the conflict in Ukraine was mostly studied from the international standpoint, but nobody looked at the the way Ukraine itself defines the conflict and defines the past states. And therefore I decided to look at at Ukrainian domestic laws, plus the laws by uh, Moldova and Georgia. And what I found was that Ukraine has kind of two approaches being Combined. It has special status law of offer, offering special status to Donbass kind of in response to um uh, to, to to ceasefire and uh, the fulfilment of other conditions by the Russian Federation, and on the other hand, it has the reintegration law that says that Russian Federation is an occupying force and so on and so forth. But special status looks like the approach by Moldova, and uh, the reintegration looks like an approach from Georgia. So it basically took both approaches and uh, incorporated them into domestic law. And even though now we don't see some real-life collisions that come from this fact. I would say that in case Minsk process proceeds, uh, then it will be really difficult to maintain both uh, tracks of regulating uh, the status of on the territories in uh, Donbass region, and uh, another thing to say that the next step I'm going to implement about this research is to look at the coherence of Ukraine's domestic legislation with Ukraine's approach to the strategic use of warfare at the international arena. Basically, to see how Ukraine speaks the conflict and how Ukraine speaks occupied territories uh, when using the warfare and when speaking to the domestic audience, and what else. Was uh, the domestic legislation it's not it- doesn't just influence what takes place in Ukraine but it also influences conflict transformation internationally because it actually sets kind of red lines of uh, that the government cannot go beyond and at the same time provides some background for international negotiations also showing to our partners how we approach the conflict and what we can ready what can we be ready for in terms of the negotiations. Um, also, talking about the examples, what we can compare the conflict with, I would like to mention maybe what shall have been mentioned in the beginning. Is the book is published in this series, it's called Federalism and Internal Conflict. And so, the word, the word internal shall not be misused in this vein, because there are no perfectly internal conflicts nowadays in the world, because external powers always uh, take place therein. and uh, the series, it embraces very different conflicts from the ones in Nigeria, which we, that we barely know about, uh, to the ones in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and the experiences of dealing with it, uh, the conflicts in other post Yugosland countries and uh that's why there is basically a big big deal of conflicts that very uh that were attempted to settle via the so-called territorial self-governance mechanisms such as federalization and decentralization and even though the circumstances pertaining to each conflict can be very different uh, all these experiences of federalization, decentralization and other territorial self-governance solutions uh, deserve our attention as scholars because some aspects can be uh, close to each other in. Very different contexts, even maybe Ukraine and Nigeria may have something in common, and we can use some best practices from all over the world to implement this process and uh, to deal with centralization further and to proceed with it.
1: Uh, Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Marina. So, as your volume uh, shows, there are a lot of things to consider, but there is so much to do uh, still in spite of all the aspects that were considered for your volume and in spite of all the aspects that were considered for um, uh, the implementation of decentralization and for all those attempts to solve the uh, conflict in some way. Uh, So, I would like to thank you, um, Hannah and Marina, for this wonderful conversation. And again, uh, congratulations on the This wonderful volume, which I said is very, very significant and important, not only in terms of the aspects that are presented, but also in terms of the terminology that you uh, try to clarify with this volume. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, Today I spoke with the editors uh, of Decentralization, uh, Regional Diversity and Conflict, the Case of Ukraine, uh, Hanna Shellist and uh, Marina Rabinovich, which was published by Paul Grave uh, Macmillan in 2020. Thank you for listening to New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel in the New Book Network.